Um, today I'm going to say the, uh, this is our, I think our last meeting, correct? Yeah. At least for this book. So I'm going to say the prayer of the mid-hour um, of the first hour. There's, there's the first hour and then there's the mid-hour. We don't say the mid-hour every day. The monasteries, they say the mid-hour during the fasts of Christmas and the Holy Apostles. But the prayers of mid-hour are very, um, they're very powerful. O eternal God, the beginningless and everlasting light, the fashioner of all creation, the fountain of mercy, the gulf of goodness, the unsearchable abyss of love for man, cause the light of thy countenance to shine upon us, O Lord. Shine in our hearts with thy noetic son of righteousness and fill our souls with thy gladness and teach us ever to meditate upon and to proclaim thy judgments and to give thanks continually and to be our master and benefactor. Direct the works of our hands unto thy will and guide us to do those things that are pleasing and dear to thee. That through us who are unworthy and all holy name may be glorified of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, of the one Godhead and kingdom, unto whom is due all glory and honor and worship unto the ages. Amen. That prayer was by St. Basil. Um, and uh, if anyone is uh, interested in the praying the hours, there's a little book, the book of the hours. Of course, the, the real book of the hours, the Horologion, is very big. It's very thick. And um, uh, but many, many Christian families have the Orologion and they use the Orologion to pray. Uh, but this is a condensed version. It just has the hours. And um, praying the hours is something is a very ancient practice of the uh, Christian church. Uh, we, we read about um, Christians being, um, uh, Christians reading the hours from the first and the second centuries, Right. Um, and of course, the hours, there's the first hour, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour. Technically, also the midnight service is part of the hours and Compline is also part of the hours. So there are the four and then the extra two, Compline and midnight service. So this is the last chapter of St. Nectarios's, um this compendium, this short compendium on St. Nectarios's teachings about teaching. Uh, for the mind and heart. Um, I recently looked into how many works St. Nectarios actually wrote, and there is a tremendous number of volumes that are being prepared. Already, I think there's something like 10 volumes published and many, many more to go of his works. In Greek, a very small fraction has been, has been translated into English. Even though St. Nectarios is very popular, meaning there's a very broad devotion to St. Nectarios across ethnic and linguistic lines throughout the entire Orthodox world. It's only recently that his writings have been kind of rediscovered. Of course, people knew about them, but it's only recently that scholars have started to republish them, uh, collect them into volumes, uh, and, and um, people have gotten interested in them. One of these books that he published, many of the books actually that he published were actually textbooks that he wrote for his students at the Rizarios Theology School, which is in Athens, where he was the, uh, the head of the school. Um, and he was in charge, of course, of developing the curriculum. And the Rizarios Theology School, the seminary, uh, trained priests and bishops, future priests and bishops, um, 
who were going to pastor the church of Greece, but also uh, the church of Cyprus, as well as the Patriarchate of Jerusalem and the Patriarchate of Alexandria, which is St. Ecthadios' home jurisdiction. That's where he was ordained to the Episcopate. Um, also, the, I should mention the Patriarchate of Constantinople. Those are the Greek-speaking autocephalous churches. The other, um, and the other churches, of course, are um, non-Greek-speaking, either Slavic or Romanian, Albanian, so on and so forth. Um, and so that Athens kind of became a center of uh, theological study. Even uh, the Patriarchate of Antioch to this day sends its um, advanced seminarians to the schools in Athens, particularly the University of Athens, which is different from the Rizarios school, um, to gain a theological education. Thessaloniki is another center. Um, so Senectarios' uh, works have a broad influence across the Orthodox world. The particular essay here is called The Necessary Attributes of a Spiritual Shepherd. And this comes from a handbook on pastoral theology that he wrote in 1898. Pastoral theology has to do with the, the, the science of pastoring souls. That is of, of guiding souls to their salvation. And this is... Um, we have all these pastoral metaphors in the church. Um, for example, um, bishops are called spiritual shepherds. A pastor is a shepherd, right? We often associate the word pastor with Protestantism because there are some Protestant denominations that call their leaders pastors, right? But actually, that's an Orthodox term. A pastor is a shepherd. It's the same. It's the same, just two different languages from Latin versus the English. The Latinate term versus the English term. Shepherd is English. Um, and of course, in Greek, we have the word bimin. And the science and the theology of being a pastor is called bimandiki, right? The science of being a bimin, of being a shepherd. But what is this? Why do we say that the bishop is a shepherd? Well, because we also say the church is a flock. And this is this goes all the way back to our Lord who used this metaphor to describe his role in the salvation of mankind. Right? Of course, many, many non-believers mock the church because the church calls its members sheep. And, and a flock and they think that by that the church means that people are to mindlessly follow and that's not true at all because the tradition of the church talks about the rational sheep right continuing this metaphor rational sheep logica uh, provata right the, the 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 sheep that have reason that have word and thus we're not talking about people mindlessly following, but people follow, people um, being persuaded through words, through reason, but also through example, uh, and ultimately through faith, following through faith. But why does the scripture refer to 
our Lord is a shepherd, shepherd and his followers is a flock. Uh, well, first of all, I think when it, as it pertains to our Lord, he is God and man, right? And so he is two natures in one person. And to that extent, to the extent that he is God, pre-eternally God, um, yes, he's superior to us in the way that a human being is superior to sheep, right? Perhaps in a greater way, not perhaps, certainly in a greater way, because the, the distance between us and human nature and divine nature is much greater than the distance between the nature of sheep and the nature of human beings. So to that extent, yes, he is our, he is a superior being uh, that is leading us, the superior, the, the supreme being leading us. Um, but on the human end, it's also apt to call the members of the church sheep uh, because among all the animals, among all the animals, right? If we divide up the animals, we can divide them roughly into two groups, the wild and the tame, right? With wild animals, you can't put them in any order, even though, you know, internally, if you observe them, they have their order. God has given them instincts uh, for their own preservation, right? Lions have their own pride, uh, you know, wild, whatever, deer have their own herds and so on and so forth. Um, so the wild animals, human beings can't, they're called wild for a reason. We can't control them. Uh, or at least we can't control them without weapons um, and the threat of death and actually killing them. Tame animals, however, obey. And to that extent, tame animals represent a type of restoration of the Edenic state, where Adam, of course, and Eve could communicate with animals and animals obeyed them. And so the taming of animals is a step in back to that. Um, at the same time, among all the tame animals, the sheep are the most peaceful, right? The sheep are the most peaceful. All the other animals have a hard time obeying human beings sometimes. The goats and pigs certainly have a hard time. Cattle, donkeys have their own, have a mind on their own, of their own, right? They, they get, once they, <laughs> once they get stubborn, they, they don't cooperate, right? But the animals that cooperate the most are the sheep, right? And that's exactly why, that's exactly the source of the metaphor, the cooperation, the, the peaceful cooperation, right? So within the church, we have this peaceful cooperation. We have one, A, a restoration of, an, of the state or a partial restoration of the state of things the order of things as they existed in the Garden of Eden. But at the same time, we also have um, the, uh, the peaceful coexistence and collaboration and cooperation between all of the um, members of the church and their obedience to their shepherd. And the obedience to the shepherd is on two levels. One is rational, because we are rational sheep. But then our Lord says that the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and they know his voice and they can distinguish it from the, um, the voice of the thieves, right? Um, and that represents the fact that some, 
when we recognize Christ, when we come to Christ, we're not using our reason. We're using something higher than our reason. It's through immediate perceptions, through faith, through the immediate perception of faith that we recognize his voice and we follow him. Also, the sheepfold is a metaphor for the church because what is the sheepfold? It's the effort of the shepherd to protect his sheep from wild animals, wolves in particular, right? And who are the wolves? We talked, someone asked me the other day at, at church, why does it always talk about the noetic wolf? Why do the sacred writings, the hymns of the church talk about the noetic wolf? Who is the noetic wolf? The noetic wolf is Satan who wants to devour our souls. He wants to take our souls to Hades, to hell with him. He wants to spread the suffering broadly. Um, and, um, and so we have the sheepfold is the church. And the sheepfold has definite boundaries. And those boundaries are erected for a purpose. And the shepherd has erected those boundaries in order to defend the flock, the sheep, from the wolves. Um, and from thieves. The thieves are the heretics, right? The, the deceivers, those who want to delude, uh, to lead people into plani. The word plani is kind of related to this pastoral metaphor. Plani in English is often translated as delusion, but the Greek word plani means wandering, wandering alone in the wilderness outside of the sheepfold, um, at risk of being devoured at any moment by um, wolves or even lions, because in the Middle East there were lions up until the modern era, up until the end of the Middle Ages, there were lions. Um, and so the bishop, of course, is in the place, is an icon of Christ and is in the place of Christ. The presbyters, of course, are icons of the apostles and in the place of the apostles, right? So we have within the local church, the entire um, uh, ecclesiastical order represents the heavenly order. Uh, and so since the bishop is the, the represent, rep representative of Christ, he symbolically manif present, manifests Christ's presence in the church. He is the shepherd, the, shepherd, the chief shepherd. Right, of his flock, of his diocese. And he has the presbyters who are his, who have his authority delegated to them. They're his delegates. They're like, uh, and so they're sent out to the smaller sheepfolds, the parishes, um, and they do the bishop's work in the parishes. Um, and so at the end of this essay, the St. Nicodemus has some very important things to say about what a bishop is. Um, but uh, he starts with the question of what acquired intellectual attributes must the spiritual shepherd possess? And he says philological and theological education, ecclesiastical formation, and thirdly, encyclopedic learning. He's going to demonstrate, he's going to prove this thesis throughout the essay. And it's going to be all in the service of this shepherding, of this defending of the flock, um, and this caring for the flock. Um, so he starts with philology, which one would think you should start with theology. Well, let's talk about philology first. What is philology? Oh. Philology is an interesting 
word that has fallen out of use in the English-speaking world. To the extent that I am actually employed in a philology department at a university, um, and when I tell my colleagues that, you know, our degree should be called a bachelor's of arts in philology, they don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> At least the younger ones don't know what I'm talking about. And they think that it'll drive students away if we have that title. This is a true story. I've had more than one conversation about this. Yeah. I am the defender of philology. Uh, <laughs> um, and of the word. What, what is philology? Philology literally means, you break it down into its parts from philo to and logos. Yeah. Philologos is a lover of words. Now that could sound like a bad thing. A lo lover of words is either someone who's really idle, you think, or someone who wants to manipulate words. But those are of course abuses or a lack. But the, the philology is the science of language, the science of grammar, of logic, and of rhetoric, all three together. Philology is the study, in other words, of the, of the most humane, the most human of all attributes, language, right? Language is the one thing that we do, that we have capacity, that we have. Speaking is the one activity that we do that proves without a doubt, I think, if one is honest with themselves, with himself, proves without a doubt that we have a soul. Uh, our language is a manifestation. It's an externalization. We externalize. It's also part of the divine image in us because it's, it's not an accident that St. John, the theologian, talks about the Son of God as the Word. And if you read the triadic canons, the triadic canons are the, the on Sunday morning, at the Mesoniktikon, at the midnight office, also called nocturnes, there's a canon every Sunday. Usually it's only heard by the priests. The priests often read it by themselves because there's no one in church or they're at home and they read it before they go to church. But everyone should read it if you have access to the Mesoniktikon, to the, rather to the Paraklitiki or the Oktoichos. And these, these have all been translated. Um, and in those canons, the Holy Fathers talk about the Father as mind the Son as Word, and of course the Holy Spirit as Spirit. Those are uh, uh, words that correspond to faculties of, of human nature, fact powers, human powers, right? The, the mind, the, the Word and the Spirit. So the mind is the, the, our inner world. Um, and the Word is the idea that's generated in our inner world that's then communicated outward. And the spirit is the meaning of that idea that's then conveyed to others. That process, that communicative process is an image of the Holy Trinity. It's not a perfect image because with the Holy Trinity, we're not talking about manifestations of God, three different manifestations of God. We're talking about three perfect and distinct individuals, persons who share the same nature, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? Um, but within us, their modalities, right? They're, they're operations of human nature. And because it's just an image, it's an icon. And so word, our ability to use language, our ability to think 
rationally and our ability to persuade others to convey meanings is the part of us that corresponds to the son of God, right? It corresponds to the word. It's an image of the word. Um, and so it's, it's philologia, philologos, is someone who is engaged in something very high, a very high calling to study language, study grammar, the way that the language works. I have to tell you that when I first started studying ancient Greek and Latin, which was way too late, it was, I was in college. Of course, I had been exposed to ancient Greek for a long time. I never formally studied it though until I was a freshman in college. And that's, I should have started a, long, a lot earlier than that, but nonetheless, it's never too late. Um, but when I was first exposed to ancient Greek and then later to Latin, um, I really felt that as I got into the, and some of you have, I know in this group, studied ancient Greek and Latin, when you get into the structure of the language, um, into the various uses and the meanings and the, and the um, various aspects of the grammar. And um, you feel that your world is transformed. I felt that my world is transformed. I understand, I understood the world better, more clearly. Things got clear. Certainly I, I was able to understand my own language, English and modern Greek better after studying ancient Greek and Latin. Um, and I, it felt like scales fell off of my eyes. Like all of a sudden I, and that's because those two languages, they're not the only languages, but they're the, perhaps the most prominent languages, which of course employ classical grammar are so thorough. Uh, they're so, they're a complex sort of, um, they're, 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 they're really, spectacular. I know uh, our parish priest, Father Stephen Allen, always says that if, if once you study ancient Greek, after that, all that's all you need to do to realize that man is also noetic, not merely rational, but also noetic, because only the nous could come up with some of these uh, things in ancient Greek, the tenses and the various aspects and the combination of all those things. Anyway, the point is that the study of language is on the one hand useful, but on the other hand, it's also something that um, uh, elevates us. It elevates us because we're cultivating an innate capacity that's an image of the whole part of the image of the Holy Trinity in us. Uh, and so philological education is necessary, St. Ictadio says, for the spiritual shepherd, the study of grammar, logic, and rhetoric is study is necessary for the spiritual shepherd um, because it's the foundation of every science, which is true. It's actually true. If you study grammar, you, you, you're very likely to succeed, succeed in any other discipline. After all, mathematics has to be translated back into language to make any sense. Uh, it's, we pretend or, or, or we're not taught properly when we just think that mathematics is just a bunch of symbols. We could think symbolically through math without thinking linguistically, uh, but that's not true. It has to be translated. And if you study math in Greek, then you know, well, you can't actually study math in Greek without studying ancient Greek first, because you're using Greek prepositions and cases to uh, represent mathematical relationships. And there you see the relationship between math and language. But it is the foundation of every science and the means of acquiring all knowledge, 
facility with language prognosticates uh, success in other disciplines. It cultivates and readies the mind, rendering it a suitable instrument capable of contributing to the successful accomplishment of the spiritual shepherd's holy mission. What is that mission? To shepherd the rational flock, to lead it to perfection, to teach the flock the, the gospel truths, to correct those who have sinned, to draw, to gather back, to bring back to the church those who do not believe, and last, to continue the work of the apostles. Right, And throughout all of those Throughout all those aspects of the bishop's, the shepherd's mission, um, the use of language, of course, is of persuasive language and clear language and the correct use of language and clear and correct thought. Um, all of that is essential. Otherwise, the bishop is not able to, um, uh, to, to accomplish his mission. Um, so that's why on page 71, section seven, I'm going to skip over some sections. I'd like to talk about every section in particular, but we don't have a lot of time. And so this is why he says that one who is um, who's fit for the bishop's office, one who is learned, one who has broad language and who has achieved spiritual maturity. I think there's a typo there. It should be spiritual maturity. The learned and wise spiritual shepherd alone always acts as his meat and right, bringing to fruition the divine end at which he aims. He alone builds up su supports and benefits the Christian people that he shepherds. He alone succeeds in advising, admonishing, rebuking both privately and publicly as is proper and in consoling as is needed. Be ready, the apostle enjoins, in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching, right? The bishop does all these things through his words, right? The bishop does not have the authority to coerce anyone. The bishop is not a doctor to intervene with, with chemicals or, or surgically um, or through some kind of physical manipulation. The bishop does not do any of these things. He doesn't build with his hands. He, he speaks with his mouth. And he writes with his pen. Um, and only a broad language, only broad knowledge rather, and a clear understanding of, of philology can the bishop do this. Of course, there's also the element of the Holy Spirit, which St. Nectarios does not deny. In fact, in the end, he's going to clarify things, a, a few things for us. Um, but remember that the Holy Fathers teach that um, we are to cooperate with God which of course means uh, fulfilling his commandments, doing what he says. How, you know, we expect him to do what we say when we petition, when we ask things, when we pray, we expect them to, we have faith. God, can you really do this? But how can we do that if we're not doing his will? So we have to join our will to his will. And in fact, in the Garden of Eden, that was the purpose of the rule given to them, to join the human will to the divine will as the first step towards illumination and deification, becoming one with God. So, um, so there's cooperation. But cooperation also means that our faculties function properly and that we offer to God 
um, our faculties and our body um, in, in their natural state. Right? Human beings were not created to be unlearned. The mind is created for knowledge. That's why there's an innate curiosity in human beings. That's not uh, merely, well, it's not coincidence, nor is it a product of evolution, right? This is an intention of the creator um, in us. This is why we're curious. We want to learn. The mind is created, the world was created for the mind to know it, and the mind was created to know the world, and through the world to ascend to God, through the knowledge of the world to ascend to God. And so we offer, what, what do we do in the, maybe, maybe thinking about this in terms of how the liturgy is celebrated can clarify things. So what happens in the liturgy? In the liturgy, we offer to God what is his. That's why the priest says, thine own of thine own. Ta, sa, your things, ek ton son, from your own things. Um, and that they're offered and they're immaculate, and they're perfect, right? And they're sanctified, in fact, transformed. In the same way, in every other aspect of life, we offer to God what is his, what he gave us. My mind is not my own. Of course, it is in a certain one sense, but it's given to me. I didn't create it, right? My, all the faculties of my soul and I offer them back to God. How do I offer them back to God? By cooperating with God. So the bishop, of course, Synecdotis is not saying that the bishop or the priest or anyone teaching is merely using, is merely to rely on their own means. But they're to use their own innate faculties and their knowledge uh, and, and cooperate and offer them back to God and God works through them. The, remember what happened with the Holy Apostles. The Holy Apostles would walk by and their shadows would heal people. Does God really need the shadow of an apostle to heal someone? He doesn't. He doesn't. He could, have, he could heal everyone miraculously in, in, in any moment. Um, but he was working through the Apostles because the Apostles were working in him. Right? They were cooperating. They joined their energies, their activities, their will to his will. And there was a fusion, a per, uh, not a confusion, but a union, right? And so the St. Nectarius is saying that the bishop should cultivate his mind, his use of language, and offer it back to God. And then when he speaks, there is a collaboration, a cooperation. Uh, why else should the shepherd be educated? Because the spiritual shepherd is considered by all to be an erudite and learned man with a deep knowledge of principles, beliefs, canons, rubrics, the typicon, in other words, and the spirit of the church in general. It is to him that they turn for information and answers to their questions. Second, because he is set over the wise and the unwise, over the educated and the uneducated, and he ought to inspire respect and conviction and all those he teaches. This is very. This is an interesting, a very important point because the church. Re remember what the, the the church is a remedy is the remedy to human fragmentation, and we tend to separate each other out. We 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 send, we tend to fragment things, right? All these divisions, 
right? Uh, age, gender, class, um, ethnicity, language, regions, political views. Um, and here we have with educated and uneducated class and education. And we tend to um, kind of gravitate towards people who are like us. And some commentators of American, of American society, critics of American culture um, have said that this is one of the chief problems in America where you have a new class divide because educated people stick, to, stick with educated people and non-educated people stick with non-educated people. I'm paraphrasing and summarizing. But the point is that we have, our tendency is to go to the people that are like us. It makes sense. We should. It's not a bad thing, but it's a bad thing if that's the only thing you do, right? Obviously, um, I enjoy speaking to my colleagues about, I don't know, historical things or philological things, um, but I cannot live my entire life just thinking about those things with them. They can't do that either. They have to go back. We have to, by the way, as a professor, I have to be relevant to society. And, and I have to be able to talk to people. If that's true for me as a professor, who, uh, you know, especially professor at a public university like I am, it's certainly true of the bishop. The church heals all these divisions, bring, draws everyone in. So in the church, we can't talk about generational divides. We can't talk about... Um, gender divides. We can't talk about social divides, right? Now there are, with gender, biological sex, there obviously there is a division that's created by God for our, our particular salvation. And anywhere that we live, whatever social status we have, of course, God has provided that we were born in the situation that we were for our particular salvation. And with, and but getting back to gender and biological sex, of course, there are distinct roles for men and women in the church and in society, right? Women are not called to be to the priesthood. Men are, right? That's, that's a major distinction between men and women. But in the context of the Holy Eucharist, right? You have a bishop, priests, deacons, and then the laity, men and women. Everyone, takes, everyone communes. They're all one body. Right? The bishop is the bishop, the men are the men, the women are the women, but at the same time, they're one. The division is healed. Different parts are brought together. We don't lose our distinctions. We don't lose our uniqueness. We don't lose our special roles, but we're brought together and we work as one in one body. That's, that's the other um, the church talks about itself as the flock, but also as the body of Christ, because we have an integral unity that's established through Holy Communion. Um, and so the bishop has to be able to relate to everyone. The bishop cannot just relate, and by extension, the priest and anyone who teaches in the church, who has that authority delegated to them by the priest through the bishop, sorry, by the bishop through the priests, I mean, catechists, for example, um, the, uh, they, they have to relate to everyone. They can't just relate to the educated. 
it would be completely inappropriate for a priest to give an academic talk um, as a sermon, um, speaking only to people who have advanced degrees. Uh, but it would also be completely inappropriate for the priest only to address the unlearned, simple stories, right? Um, right? It would be completely uh, uh, inappropriate for the priest just to speak to the children. Although the, speak, the, the priest has to speak to everyone. Uh, he has to be able to talk to everyone at their level. Um, and in church, in one sermon, it's going to be difficult to do that. And so the priest has to try to say something that everyone can relate to. Maybe at different points, he'll say something in one language or the other, or um, at one level or another. The point is that he's responsible for everyone to bring anyone into unity. So the bishop is going to be set over the wise and the unwise, the learned and the unlearned, the educated and the uneducated. And he ought to inspire respect and conviction and all those that he teaches. This is very perceptive, right? The, the priest and the bishop, um, unless you have people that are very educated men who are very humble, which is rare uh, because the educated have their passions. Um, unless you have someone who's very humble, the presence of an uneducated clergyman could become a temptation they could be tempted into saying, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I know more than him, right? And then you get go down this rabbit hole of logizmi, of thoughts, um, and it, it, it's spiritually counterproductive. But the bishop who could speak to everyone on, on their level, or the priest who could speak to everyone, of course, bypasses, sidesteps that whole problem. He can relate to the educated man. He can relate to the uneducated man. Thirdly, because he is a shepherd of shepherds. The bishop now is the shepherd of shepherds and teacher of teachers, right? Catechism is the bishop's job. It's not even the priest's job. It's certainly not the Sunday school teacher's job uh, in, in an isolated sense. It's the bishop's job. And the confession of the faithful is not the priest's job. In, in an isolated sense, by himself. The preaching of the word of God in church, even the divine liturgy, the priest does things because the bishop has delegated to him the authority to do that. The, the, the priest's authority is derived from the bishop's authority. Right? The bishop appoints a priest to a parish. He gives him his antimension, which is the, the, the cloth on which is so, are sewn the uh, relics of saints, and it's been uh, consecrated with chrism, but it's the cloth on which the um, divine liturgy is celebrated, and the bishop, of course, has signed the bottom of it, so you know who, who bishop, which bishop under whose jurisdiction the particular church is uh, under, and the, the, the priest can only celebrate liturgy where the bishop has allowed him to celebrate liturgy. The bishop, the priest cannot celebrate liturgy anywhere. He can't just set up a chapel by himself in his church, in his house, and just celebrate liturgy just like that without the bishop's knowledge. That actually is a defrocable offense. Um, that is something that's very problematic. Uh, now, many priests have home chapels, like my father has a home chapel, um, but they have the permission of their bishops 
to uh, liturgize in there, in, in the chapels. Um, in the case of the Holy Archangels in Orland Park, uh, it's the Archbishop himself, the current Archbishop, who actually uh, came and blessed the Archbishop Kalinikos before he was Archbishop back in the 90s. Who he did, It's not consecrated, but he blessed um, the Holy Table. And uh, But of course, he was acting on behalf of Metropolitan Petros at the time, who was our ruling hierarch in the 90s. Um, so the, the point is that the bishop, the priest by himself is nothing without the bishop. Everything is delegated. And the catechists have to understand that they are the extension of the bishop through the priest. But the bishop is the head of this entire pyramid, teacher of teachers. His speech to both shepherds and teachers ought to be, ought to be absolutely authoritative. Right? There can't be any room for someone to doubt that doesn't mean the bishop is a tyrant or that the priest in the parish is a tyrant and doesn't take advice from anyone. The, the presbyters, the presbyters are the council, just like there's a council of bishops who meet with the archbishop or with the patriarch. Within each diocese, there's a council of presbyters. There's the council of presbyters who stand around the bishop and when the bishop asks for advice they give him their best advice this is why the bishops just don't ordain it just anyone people they trust they trust their judgment um but the decision is the bishops alone right it's, we're not in a democracy it's a monarchy but that, that again but that doesn't mean that the monarch ignores people um right so there's that's pretty much obvious. That's that's how monarchies should work, and that's how dioceses work. But when the bishop makes a decision, it's authoritative. You, it should not. There should be no room for doubt. Um, fourth, because it would be unfitting for one of the masses to be made shepherd of the rational sheep and teacher of the unwise. Sorry, and teacher of the wise and learned. Right, one of the masses. What does that mean? Uh, people that not only don't have schooling but are um, uncultivated in other ways. It's not a sin to be one of the masses, to be a, a farmer. Most of the people that Saint Nicholas has in mind are farmers. Right? It's, it's not. There's nothing wrong with being a farmer, but the farmer has to know his place. There's nothing wrong with being an artisan. Right a carpenter or someone who makes things with their hands. There's nothing wrong with that, but they need to know their place because even within their operations, there's a hierarchy of people within the artist artisan's workshop. He is the master and the people that work for him are his students. The students can't get ahead of themselves, right? The farmer, the farmer is the master of the farm. He has a lot of knowledge, right? This isn't about putting people down. The farmer is an expert. Farmers understand thing, many more things that I don't understand about the earth, about plants, uh, about terrain, and so on and so forth. They have a lot of intimate knowledge. And the people that work for them, they are obedient to them. There's a hierarchy. They can't get ahead of themselves. The, the farmer is in charge. But in a society, farmers and artisans, even professionals, lawyers, doctors, have to know their place. There's a social order. 
um, in, in, in general, in the modern world, the word hierarchy is a bad word. Uh, if you mention hierarchy in the halls of my university, the people uh, always think about oppression and, and repressing people. Um, but in fact, if you read the Holy, the Holy Father, St. Dionysius the Areopagite, is the person who actually um, made the word hierarchy. Uh, I, I think he was, he's the one that even coined the word hierarchy. Um, and hierarchia. It's a sacred order. And if you read St. Dionysius, you learn that the, the purpose of the hierarchy, the hierarchy is never static, but it's dynamic. And it's not, its function is not to oppress, but to elevate. Each rank reaches down the rank below and brings them up to their position. Right? Each rank reaches down and, and elevates those below them. So it's dynamic, but it has to work in order. You can't skip and you certainly can't make everyone equal. Um, and so the mass, someone who is unprepared, who doesn't have the skills intellectually and the spiritual pre uh, preparation, of course, is not fit to lead um, uh, people, to lead rational sheep. And then he says something very important. Since, and the rationale behind this, the further rationale, since when a voice like a trumpet and a word of power is needed, such a one will keep silent, speak weakly and feebly because they'll be unsure of themselves, or else will speak wildly, saying offensive, unsuitable, and unreasonable things. So here St. Nectarius was talking about the prophetic dimension of the church and the prophetic mission of the clergy. What did the prophets do? Well, what did St. Elias do? What did St. John uh, the Forerunner do? Or even uh, the prophet um, Isaiah. They spoke truth to power. St. Elias, he said, you can't worship these gods. Baal. Right? The holy, the holy forerunner. What did he say? He said, it's not lawful to commit adultery. It's not allowed to commit adultery. It's against the law of God. Speaking to kings. And they say both, all three, Elias, Isaiah, and John were persecuted. And the last two were actually killed because they spoke truth to power fearlessly. Um, and today we don't have kings, but we have society. And there's a lot going on in society that the church needs to speak, speak about. The church, the church needs to speak up and say, enough is enough. This is wrong. This is not allowed. Um, that, that applies to particular heresies like ecumenism. It also applies to um, general, more general delusions, cultural delusions, right? such as the ones we see unfolding in front of us, um, like the sexual revolution, for example, that's destroyed millions of souls, killed tens of millions. By one account, I think we're, I read an article once that said that the number of infants aborted in, since the middle of the 20th century, since the legalization of abortion in the various countries, 
has now exceeded the number of deaths, the estimated number of deaths in all known wars of all human history. So historians have knowledge of many wars, hundreds, thousands of wars that have happened. And a, a military historian can estimate you know, what, how many people died per war. The wars of the 20, 19th and 20th centuries, we have more accurate numbers. But the number of abortions. What is abortion? Abortion is part of a cultural delusion that the church needs to speak up about. The church's voice, St. Nicodemus says, is, the, is like a trumpet, a word of power that pierces through the din of battle, through the, through the confusion. Um, and it, it reaches the hearts of men and challenges them. So if you have an unlearned man as you're, as in a position of authority, either they will be too scared to speak up because they're not sure of themselves, or they'll be rightly angered by what's happening, but they'll say something extreme, right? They'll speak wildly or speak offensively. Perhaps the <laughs> offense, offending someone is appropriate for some people. Some people respond to, respond to offenses. Uh, but it's not, of course, something that could be generally applied. But worst of all, he says, he may be misled by the artistry of his interlocutor, of the people he's debating, and blindly follow him. He could be misled if he's unsure of himself, doesn't understand, doesn't have a proper understanding of philosophy, of language, the history of ideas, the history of his own society. Um, and and one could be misled into thinking that, yeah, this makes sense. Uh, becoming a disciple rather than a teacher. In this case, he will be alienated from truth and he will pass his life deceiving and deceived. That's the worst case scenario. But it's the worst case scenario, not in potential. There are examples. Yesterday, a very pathetic thing happened. There was a pan-religious uh, service in Rome with all these different people from different religions all kind of praying together, including the Patriarch of Constantinople, representatives of other Orthodox churches, and the Pope of Rome, plus an assortment of other Buddhists and things like that. It's completely pathetic because they're all wearing masks, so it looks very strange. But... but but it's uh, you should uh, don't look it up. It's a waste of time because we already know it's wrong. Oh yeah. Uh, but it's this. It's exactly what you're saying: deceiving and deceived. When I saw it, my first reaction was it's pathetic. My second reaction was, well, I felt sorry for them. They're mm -hmm. deceived, but then they're deceiving other people. Um, I'm gonna jump over to. Um, there's a lot of interesting things. Oh, section nine. Why else is it necessary for the bishop to possess a philological education? Because language is a weapon. He says, there is no other suitable aid, no weapon or means more effective and proficient than speech when it comes to rendering him, the bishop, capable of performing those lofty duties laid upon his shoulders with fitting precision and successfully fulfilling the sacred mission of his office. Speech is a weapon by means of which one may defend against the attacks of the enemies of faith and truth and tear down their ramparts. The, the writings of the Holy Fathers are evidence of this, right? They're all, most of them 
are a defense of the faith. Um, then he talks about, he, on page, on page 74, 73 and 74, he um, takes on those who say that unlearned men should be bishops and that bishops don't, don't need leadership in the church does not require education, but only piety. Um, and he um, he said he brings St. Gregory the theologian and later St. John Chrysostom um, into the discussion. But on page 74, kind of he summarizes. He summarizes the positions of those who disagree with him. And they've been there have been people throughout history that have thought that learning is not necessary because the apostles were fishermen, right? That the Holy Spirit provides what is lacking. Um, because our Lord said, settle it in your hearts to meditate beforehand on what you for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Of course, St. Nicodemus is not contradicting any of these things. He's not saying that the apostles were not fishermen. They were not empowered by the Holy Spirit where we shouldn't obey our Lord. He's not saying any of that. But he's saying that the people that bring up these arguments, in fact, are deceiving themselves. Because uh, if we jump forward to page 79, um, we get an understanding of who he's talking about. He's talking about people who want to secularize, to secularize um, the, and to weaken the office of the bishop and the office of church, of, 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 leadership in the church in the, the parish diocesan or even the patriarchal national church level um because there there's there are some people that say that the bishop's job is just to be an administrator good administration good administration doesn't require philology or theology or encyclopedic learning um there's another group of people that are we, you call pietists um, who, who focus on just the outward forms of piety. Or they might even think about the inward forms, but they, they divorce piety from its theological meaning and don't want to think about theology. They just want to do what they've always done. Um, they want to feel, they want to do what, they, what they've always done and feel good about it. And to them, education is of no use. Uh, but Saint Nectarios takes issue with this, and he says that this is not this is not real leadership in the church. Real leadership in the church, the bishop has to cultivate all of his faculties because all of his faculties are engaged. I'm summarizing here, um, are engaged in the defense in the of the church and the building up of the souls of the faithful, and actually speaking and persuading, transforming persuasion has it plays a role in metania, transforming people. Um, he talks about, on page 77, why, el, why is theological, um, so, so on the top of 77, why, what do we mean by theological education? The science of theology. We mean that the bishop should possess theological knowledge acquired in a scientific manner. In other words, his theological knowledge should be composite, but not confused and disordered, such as proceeds from random and varied readings. Rather, than from scientific examination and study. And he talks about scientific theological education, by which St. Nectarios 
means systematic, seeing how everything is connected, seeing the whole edifice of the tradition as a whole. Because the problem when you don't see the whole is that you fixate on the part. And this is where distortion comes in. When you fixate on a part, when you obsess on a fragment, you'd start to distort the, the whole thing loses its, the, all of tradition loses its unity. And this is where heresies emerge, where, where a heretic has focused on a part rather than putting the part in relation to the whole. So having a systematic understanding of theology is very important. Of course, the word theology, right, is a theologos, is the person who can speak about God. But it's also someone who could speak about God's revelation to the world and the tradition that that revelation has generated, right, through the works of inspired saints, inspired in the literal sense of being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, so there's an entire, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a unity, it's a tapestry that's all united. Um, fragmenting it leads us astray, breaking it up into pieces. Unclear understandings, innovations, uh, distortions, forgetting also, forgetting and ignoring parts of tradition. Um, one particular thing that really affects the, the church today um, is a fixation on uh, historical aspects of the church. Um, sometimes, in terms of liturgics, sometimes this is called liturgical archaeology. Uh, where you go back and discover old practices from the ancient church and you try to revive them. Sometimes priests, sometimes bishops do this, sometimes laity do this as well. Um, or when we say that practices today or the received tradition is inferior to the practice of the fathers, and we should go back to the practice of the fathers, right? When we talk about the unity of, of theology, and the unity of tradition, we can't, we don't, we're not just talking about the unity of the ideas. We're also talking about the unity of the tradition across time, across all centuries. What was believed everywhere, in all places, in all places, at all times by everyone, right? But also the received tradition, the tradition as we received it from our fathers, from our spiritual fathers, our immediate spiritual fathers. Sinictarius among them. Um, and and uh, going back to something that we deem to be patristic, something that we deem is superior to a current practice, to the received tradition. I'm not talking about current innovations. I'm talking about the received tradition of the church as it's pa been passed down organically, as it's, been, as it's been passed down through the operation of the Holy Spirit and transformed by the operation of the Holy Spirit in order to deal with each circumstance, historical circumstance of the church, um, thinking that that is inferior to our understanding of, of church history and going back to a patristic practice. First of all, it's arbitrary. Second of all, it is a fixation on a fragment. We have to see the whole thing. And we have to, we have to um, be humble to accept what is given to us by our fathers. We, of course, we know that orthodoxy has not changed over the centuries. 
The doctrines of orthodoxy have not changed. Everything was revealed all at once to the holy apostles and before them to the holy prophets. And it was passed down to us, the saints. Particular practices, of course, have developed and changed, but they've developed and changed for a particular reason. They've been developed and changed by holy fathers, holy men who are acting under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, um, who was providing for the salvation of human beings. And usually, if you look at these, whenever these developments are always stricter, the developments are always more rigorous. Take the services. If you look at the, we talked about the hours at the beginning of this session. The hours, uh, the, the, the pr praying the hours was different, perhaps shorter in the second century, the third century than it is today. Today we have an entire developed typicon that came to its full form around the 10th century in Constantinople through various influences, to the influence of the, of the fathers of St. Sabas Monastery in Palestine, to the influence of the fathers of the, the saints of the, the St. John Monastery uh, in Studion, um, uh, through the Athenite fathers, patriarchs of Constantinople. But th this is where our typicon, the one that we have today that we use for the last thousand years, the Orthodox Church. Um, and that is a product, of course, of the Holy Spirit, but it's also been more rigorous. Why? Because we've been drifting further and further away. Society has been, or, or Christian societies have been in decline. A slow decline. Now we're in a dramatic, fast decline. But whenever you have this type of spiritual decline, what happens? The church responds, the Holy Spirit responds with more rigor. That's the antidote to decline. Um, and so fasting practices have become more rigorous. The services have become more elaborate. You have to have the humility to accept that because it's all part of one unity. It's one spirit, both in the metaphoric sense and in the literal sense, the Holy Spirit. Um, so the theological system is part of this unity. Um, the bishop, he says... Um, Sorry, in the middle of uh, section 16, what is absolute, what, why is it absolutely necessary for a shepherd of the church to possess scientific theological education? Because this, and this alone will be able to help his own flock mature and advance toward the perfection of the divine, the, the perfection the divine Paul speaks of, opening for them the divine words of the Holy Scriptures. Right? So the knowledge of theology is transformative. I have a note about that somewhere else. Um, on the next page, on page 78, uh, Christian knowledge says the, the purity of the Christian conscience depends upon the refinement of Christian knowledge. Since the more refined one's Christian knowledge, more refined is one's Christian knowledge, the more refined his Christian conscience will be transformed from darkened sense into something pure. Studying theology transforms us inwardly. It illumines the noose because the noose is made for this to receive theological revelation. Um, but back to 77, for the, the chief aim of theology is the church's benefit and progress. It has been systematized and rendered a particular science for this reason. 
abstracted from its aim, separated from it, this goal, this systematization of theology and it's being rendered uh, a particular science is to no end, right? So here's the distinction between uh, the churchman and the academic. The academic studies something really, I, don't, I mean, I'm interested in what I study, um, but from a secular point of view, right? It's an end in itself. Uh, theology is not an end in itself. Theology is for the benefit and progress of the church, of the members of the church, of the, of the laity, right? This is what a churchman does. Um, this is how he uses theology. At the bottom of 77, the bishop must be able to give an account of his own faith and answer the questions of all who have, that, who have them and address them to him. Um, Right, page 79, he talks about tradition. Um, why do the friends of ignorance who reject the strength and power of speech, what do the friends of ignorance who reject the strength and power of speech think about theological education? They reject it because they consider the works of the Holy Fathers to be good, but excessive. This is one of the secularists I was talking about. It is enough for us to believe, they say, right, the pietists. Um, a precise knowledge of ecclesiastical history and of the dogmas down to the smallest detail, a broad reading and deep study of the Holy Scriptures, the detailed examination of homilies and an appreciation of their beautiful structure. All these things are works and duties belonging to the theologians, not to the bishops. Secularization. It's for the academics, not for the churchmen. The bishop's work is to be a good, admin is, is good administration. That's, of course, false. Of course, the bishop has to be an administrator, but that's not um, the end of all things. Why is ecclesiastical formation necessary? Page 80. Because without ecclesiastical formation, it is impossible for the bishop to fulfill the holy duties assigned to him, and he will stand in need of teachers instead of, teach, instead of teaching others as he ought. The complete knowledge of holy tradition. Right. This is what St. Nectarius means by ecclesiastical formation. The complete knowledge of holy tradition of the typicon, the whole operation of the church, right? That's all very important. And it's 940. Um, there's a lot more to say. There's the whole discussion on encyclopedic learning. Let me, let me just say something about that. Um, the encyclopedic learning, the bishop has to be a polymath, says St. Nectarios. Why? Because the challenges that the church is facing um, need someone who knows what, the, what he's talking about, right? The various challenges from political fingers, from philosophers, from scientists, secularists, people who are losing their faith. They need someone who can give clear answers. Someone who understands the questions and understands the positions, right? And... <clears throat> The, the Christian scholar and bishop leader has to be charitable and has to understand, and perhaps even to the extent that, that he's writing, maybe charitably render the positions of his opponents. But the, the, of course, charity, we're obligated to be charitable towards everyone. Um, charity, which is agape, uh, does not mean though that we ignore their errors. 
the purpose of clear and concise um, summarizing and understanding clearly and concisely the positions of your opponents is to be able to refute them. And for the bishop, the stakes are high. It's not just an academic debate. This is defending souls. Um, to, um, where does he say? To today, at the bottom of 83, beyond the aforementioned things, one also requires encyclopedic knowledge because today heterodox teachings are greater in number and more systematic and their attacks are better, stronger and strike everywhere. Today, on page 84, today the authority of the sources of Christian teaching are attacked with the full force of historical, critical and philosophical research. The holy tradition is rejected. The authority and wisdom of the holy scriptures is under attack and the first principles of Christianity indeed of every religion are warred against as is the very existence of God and the distinction between matter and spirit. Today, the, the true shepherd of the church is brought face to face with such ready opponents that he must confront them so as to keep his flock safe and to restore, if possible, those who have been led away from the path of truth. The last thing I want to say here, there's a, there's a lot to discuss, but not enough time. The last thing I want to say here is that this particular chapter, one might think that it's only relevant to people who want to be bishops. I'm not going to be a bishop. I'm married, by the way, so I'm not going to be a bishop, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm also kind of uh, reconstructing the thought process, right? I'm not going to be a bishop. I don't have to worry about this. Not true. Uh, if anyone who wants to advance, anyone who wants to advance the priesthood, has to take this seriously, because even if you're going to be a married clergyman, um, you will be doing the bishop's job. You'll be doing the job that the bishop gives you, right? Not not replacing the bishop, but but you'll be acting in the place of the bishop. Um, what about women? Well, some women will be the wives of priests. And those women need to have an understanding of these things. But most importantly, when we raise our children, the young boys in particular, we have to make sure that their education is something that prepares them for service to the church and thus service to the nation. Uh, we, we have to... Um, we have to take care of the education of young boys because not all of them will be priests and bishops. Some of them will. A few of them will be bishops. Some of them will be priests. The vast majority will be fathers who will then raise the next generation of clergy and leaders. And many of them will be leaders in their communities and leaders in the nation. And so preparing for service to the church and service to the nation is the proper education of, of, of young men. Uh, St. Nectarios in multiple points talks about the mission of the youth. Right? Go, go back and read that chapter. He says that very clearly, the mission of the youth. The youth has to continue the church and the nation by begetting children, but also by being leaders. Right? Um, so that's what I had to say about St. Nectarios' last chapter. 
Um, maybe we can, in the last 15 minutes, we can take some questions or comments. There aren't any questions or comments. There is one section that I did want to talk about. Um, but you could ask your question if you have one. Relating to what happened in Rome and the Holy Ecumenism problem, Page 79 to 78, uh, 78 to 79, Synecdarius gives a definition of why, what the role of a bishop is in a church, and why it's very critical. He says, because the church of Christ the Savior has been submitted, and the, uh, and the truth and worship of the one holy Catholic apostolic church has been entrusted to the office of the bishop, right? For what reason? And important at that, for what reason does a bishop need a theological education? He says, because the church of Christ the Savior has been submitted and the truth and, the, and worship of the one holy and Catholic and apostolic church has been entrusted to the office of the bishop. The bishop is thus the keeper of the divine and holy canons, the bearer and guardian of the holy deposit and the protector of the holy tradition. Thus he becomes the judge of truth and falsehood, of piety and impiety. The preservation of the evangelical truth unto the ages depends on him. When a bishop doesn't do this, when he's no longer the bearer and guardian of the deposit and the protector of holy tradition, when he innovates, um, when he's no longer a, a reliable judge of truth and falsehood. That's exactly the problem of ecumenism. The bishops involved in ecumenism are not reliable judges of truth and falsehood. They do not define the difference between piety and impiety. Right? Because it depends on the bishop, um, A, someone who fails in all of this can cause tremendous damage to the people that follow him. And B, those who, who follow him have to stop following him. Right? This is an, ecclesi an ecclesiological principle. A bishop can, in fact, um, um, surrender or forfeit his authority when he doesn't act in the way that St. Nicodius describes here on, on, seven, on pages 78 and 79. Of course, it takes a synod actually to depose a bishop. But even before a synod deposes a bishop, the holy canons say that Christians can, if it's clear what he's doing, and it's doing and he's doing it publicly, they have an obligation to separate from him. So that that, that I I found that particular paragraph very illuminating, um, as it pertains to the modern situation of orthodoxy. Yeah, that's that's a very important reading. I mean, even when the when the heretics and the heathens, like especially non-orthodox, look at the church, they they want to think that the bishops or the leaders are going to be exemplars of the faith, and it, it's it's such an embarrassment that a lot of the ecumenists 
are representing the image of orthodoxy. And, and it's very unfortunate because, you know, you think if these people have all the access to the text of the fathers, either they know deep inside, they, they must know in their conscience that what they're doing is wrong, or they've even innovated philosophies knowing that this isn't the tradition and they've done something wicked, which I think right. this is possible. I think it's very true, but it's uh, such a great responsibility. And that's why I think that, you know, um, there, there was a saying that said that uh, the pathway to, to Gehenna is paved by the, paved uh, um, by, by the, uh, the garments of the bishop, I think, isn't this? Yeah, yes. Yeah, there's this the famous who is it Saint um, Saint Macarios, who's in the desert. He came across the skull of the pagan priest, and he asked him, "What's it like where you are?" And he said, "It's pretty bad, but below us are the Christian clergy." Yeah. And that's very uh, traumatic, actually. Through if you really think about what that means. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, as met, you know, in the last 150 years, 200 years, leaders of the Christian world have betrayed. They have betrayed the people they're serving, and that includes ecclesiastical figures, political figures. Of course, I think we could see that clearly. With the ecclesiastical figures, it's true they betrayed Christ and they betrayed their flocks. That, but obviously there are Orthodox bishops out there. I'm not. This, don't don't get me wrong. This is not an argument against all bishops. There are bishops are Orthodox. Um, however, the the those that have the spotlight, the media spotlight, represent claim to represent the the Orthodox Church. In fact, they're not representing the Orthodox Church. They're only representing themselves. Um, so. And I'm talking about the particular individuals involved in the pan-religious ritual that happened yesterday in Rome. Well, if there aren't any more questions, we can conclude. Yeah, yeah, Barbara. Um, okay, in, in scripture where Christ says, if I'm saying this right, obey my commandments and I will give you understanding in all things. Yes. Correct? Okay. Um, so when the priest offers his sermon to the people, there's, like you had said, there's different levels of educated people in, in, the, in the flock. So as long as they are, obeying the Lord's commandments in their heart, no matter what the priest says, it, sh it should, everyone should have the proper understanding. Right, well, of course, each Christian should not just depend on the sermons of the priest, right, to um, live their uh, lives. Of course, the, we, the church is a hierarchy and the role of the clergy is to guide the laity. Um, and, the, the sermon is part of one of the things that the church, one of the tools that the priest has to guide and the bishop has to guide the laity, the flock, to salvation. 
And so the laity, um, understanding their role in the hierarchy, uh, look to the clergy for clarity, clarification, for knowledge, for guidance. Um, the the and for an understanding of what God's commandments are. Ritually, within the liturgy, right, it's the clergy that are reading, revealing the word of God in word and deed, and the will of God in word and deed through their, through the gestures, through the processions, through the reading of the gospel, um, through the uh, interpretation of the gospel, the exegesis, um, and the laity, of course, are listening. Uh, but of course, their heart has to be fertile. It has to be cultivated. Uh, and that's, that's what I meant by the, the, the laity cannot rely just on, the, on, on that alone. They have to put some effort into it as well. Um, the, 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 your, our hearts are like a, a fertile ground of a garden. Mm-hmm. And the priest is sowing the seed. Right. So imagine you have a garden and your only job is to cult is to till the earth, make sure there aren't any weeds in there, that the ground has been tilled in order to receive the seed. And then the seeds are watered. And then they grow into a beautiful garden. That's your job. The priest's job is to cast the seeds. And to give you guidance as, as to how to upkeep the garden. Right. I think that's the best metaphor. because Our Lord uses used that metaphor himself. Um, for understanding what the relationship is, and so when we're when we're observing our Lord's commandments, we're keeping our garden pure and clean, mm-hmm. cultivating it inwardly. So, uh, as in all things, cooperation: the priest, the laity, cooperate with God unto their salvation. I don't know if that clarifies anything. Yes. But, yes. Uh, thank you. Yes. You're welcome. Any other questions or comments? Okay. Well, um, I guess we can conclude this uh, discussion of Saint Nectarios and his teachings. Um, thank you, Maria, for hosting this all these weeks since July. Um, we weren't we weren't meeting every Thursday, but there were good reasons for the uh, for missing the Thursdays that we did miss. Namely, there were feasts, vigils, uh, paraclesis that were going on. Um, and thank you, everyone, for uh, tuning in every Thursday. Um, and please pray for me. And I'll pray for you. Um, and hopefully we can do this again. God willing. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Leonida. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.